Next Chapter Podcasts. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yep. The song takes me right back. Right back to that date between Mark Zuckerberg and Erica Albright in the social network. And if only Erica just would have liked Mark Zuckerberg, we would have no Facebook. All of us would be happier. We would have no idea what happened to anybody that we went to high school with. We know too many people. And it's all because of this song. It's Ball and a Biscuit by the White Stripes from their 2003 album Elephant. It's also number 390 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. That is me. Welcome, Fleece Army. How you guys feeling? I want to thank everybody that came out to the Paramount Theater with me and Big J Okerson this past weekend in Austin, Texas. Also, to the people that came out to Pix in San Antonio. That shit was dope. I had a blast in Texas. I love it there. I'm not moving there. I love Los Angeles, even though we're shut the fuck down. And that's why I am in Salisbury, Maryland with my mom. Yeah, dude. My mom is cooking up everything. All the hits. All the hits from the past are being brought up. It is a greatest hits playlist in my mom's kitchen right now. But thank you to everybody that has joined our Patreon. I don't know if you guys know this. But we do video for the podcast, and we post the full video for the 500 Club members on Patreon.com backslash 500 Podcast every Wednesday. Then we publish our videos for free on YouTube every Thursday, guys. Get them a day early on Patreon. So sign up for Patreon if you want to support what we're doing here. And if you can't afford the $5 a month, you can all stream it free on YouTube. Just tell a friend. Get these people into this goddamn podcast, man. All right, let's get to this record. This is our second White Stripes record. I did White Blood Cells early on in the podcast with my man Bill Burr. And what's funny is a lot of you said we left out certain things. Like, we didn't talk about their marriage. We didn't talk about them being brother and sister. And so guess what? Let's find out about the record. It's more detailed. I got Morty now steering me in the right direction. Let's fucking do this shit. Detroit native Jack Gillis, the youngest of 10 children, whose older brothers were in a local band, learned to play the instruments they left around their house. Starting as a drummer, Jack was influenced by the usual classic rock heroes before he became smitten with the blues and 60s garage rock. According to Jack, he had been accepted into a Catholic seminary in Wisconsin, but instead chose to go to a public high school where he majored in business and played drums and trombone in the school band. He also took an upholstery apprenticeship with a family friend who turned him on to punk rock. His boss, who played drums, invited Jack to play with him, so Jack switched to guitar. When Jack was a high school senior, he would read poetry at open mic nights at a southern-themed restaurant called Memphis Smoke, where he met fellow local high school student and aspiring chef 
Meg White, who worked there. They became friends and started dating. After his apprenticeship, Jack, who is now playing drums in popular local cowpunk band Goober and the Peas, as well as playing guitar and singing at solo shows, opened his own one-man business called Third Man Upholstery. The name Jack would later call his record company. Jack and Meg get married in 96 with him legally taking her last name. I had a friend where we started a rumor where we said he took his wife's last name or was going to when they got married. I'm not going to say who it was, but my friends that are listening, they fucking know. The following year, non-musician Meg learned to play Jack's drum set while he played guitar and sang. Meg's inexperienced and rudimentary drumming excited and inspired Jack and his fondness for old and dilapidated equipment like his beat-up amplifier and his red plastic 1964 airline brand Montgomery Ward catalog guitar gave them a unique and primitive sound. They decided to call their duo the White Stripes, based on Meg's love for peppermint candies and as an acknowledgement of them being white kids playing the blues. They also chose the band's strict color scheme of red, white, and black, and to concoct a mysterious history by publicly portraying themselves as brother and sister. They started gigging a few months later in Michigan's thriving underground garage rock scene. In 99, after putting out a couple short-run vinyl singles on a small local independent label, they signed with the bigger California indie label Sympathy for the record industry and released another single, their first album, and a follow-up single. Then in 2000, they got divorced. Jack figured that was the end of the White Stripes until Meg convinced him that they could and should still keep the band together. That's a good woman right there. She knew the music was gold. Their second album saw their critical acclaim and popularity start to grow. And when their 2001 third album was picked up and re-released by the major label V2 Records in 2002, they became a smash hit in the UK. Their heralded return to a more organic, stripped down raw garage rock sound was grouped in with an unrelated but like-minded crop of new bands like the hives the strokes and the vines any of the the blank bands of like the early 2000s we all remember that their exciting primitive blues stomping saw them being compared to led zeppelin and the Sex Pistols, selling out concerts and having their albums charting and selling hundreds of thousands of copies. And after their innovative video for 2001's Fell in Love with a Girl got huge airplay on MTV and won three video awards that year, they were poised for their major label debut. Sticking with their successful lo-fi approach, they spent a couple weeks at Rag Studios in Hackney, London, England, where none of the equipment was more recent than 1963, and they recorded on an old, deteriorating eight-track analog tape machine and kept the sessions spontaneous and fresh, even composing some of their new songs on the spot. Their back-to-basics pre-modern ethos was proudly disclaimed in Elephant's liner notes as, and I quote, no computers were used during the writing, recording, mixing, or mastering of this record. Against the record company's opposition, Jack pushed for the first single to be Seven Nation Army, and with another breakthrough video, the song became a career-changing success and won the Grammy for Best Rock Song. On that strength, Elephant went to number six on the Billboard album charts and number one in the UK and won the Grammy for Best Alternative Music Album. Some critics thought that they had essentially updated some of the songs from their earlier albums. The new listeners ate that shit up. Seven Nation Army has been adopted as an anthem at sporting events and has made the White Stripes a household name. 
This was a shock to Jack, who later said, We had no business being in the mainstream. We assumed the music we were making was private in a way. After two more critically and commercially successful records, during which Jack had forays with a bunch of other music projects and some acting, they officially announced that the band was ceasing to record and effectively ending the White Stripes. Publicly, it was announced that among the many reasons was to mostly preserve what is beautiful and special about the band. However, Jack later said that it was Meg's lack of enthusiasm for them and their achievements. In her defense, the always shy Meg's acute social anxiety and desire for a low-profile life was a huge part in the decision. Jack has gone on to become wildly successful and respected as a solo artist, a member of a shitload of bands, producer, songwriter, while Meg has chosen a life away from the public eye. And as she has said, the more you talk, the less people listen. Mmm, Meg dropping knowledge. My guest today is the one and only Anthony Jeselnik. Anthony is one of my favorite comedians. I think he's one of the best joke writers working today. Also one of the nicest dudes I have met in comedy. He is the host of the podcast Jeselnik and Rosenthal Vanity Project, which he hosts alongside his good friend Greg Rosenthal. He's the host of Good Talk on Comedy Central, and you know him from numerous stand-up specials and the Comedy Central roast. Dude, I showed Anthony the list, and he was like, this is the only record I'm doing. It's my favorite record, and I was like, done. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free anywhere you get your pods. If you're listening on Apple, leave a five-star rating and a review. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media and go to my website, joshadammyers.com for links to this show, to all my shows, all my clips. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group, the 500 Podcast with Jam, run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, there's nothing left to say, but here we go. Number 390 out of 500 with Elephant by the White Stripes. It happened finally. I showed you the list, what, like months ago, and you were like, fuck all of these records. And then I sent you another list, and then this was on it, and you were like, that one. But then I was like, what about the other ones? And you were like, fuck that, dude. It was like, this is the one. I truly, I mean, I don't know anything about music. I know what I love. And of all the albums on the 500, this was the one that I thought I could talk about and not sound like I was like an idiot. Like, this is the one album that I was obsessed with the way that you should be obsessed with all 500 albums. But this is like, this is my favorite album of all time. Of all time. Uh, of all time. Yeah. Wow. It's a bold statement. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not that big a music guy, but this one just hit me in the chest and left a bruise for years. Why? Tell me, take, take, take me through your journey then. Okay. So uh, I, I moved out to Los Angeles in 2001 after college. I was working at Borders Books and Music and uh, discovered The Strokes. That, that album, uh, Is This It? And I was like, oh my God, I love this kind of music. I want more of it. And shortly after that, I think fell in love with the girl. 
just like turned the world upside down. And that introduced me to the white stripes where I bought uh, white blood cells. And then I went back and bought they still, I believe you pronounce it. And then the white stripes. The first I think that's album. how you say it, dude. I, yeah, I've that's been, how I say it. I mean, distilled Jay? <laughs> I've never been corrected. I don't I don't care to be. I, that's distilled to me uh, and just loved all of it. And I, and the, yeah, dude, all I know is that they can name it whatever the fuck they want because of little birds being on that. I'm like, that's the fucking shit right there. That made me a fan. They all kind of blend together. Oh, those first three albums kind of blend together for me, but uh, White Blood Cells was huge. I like, I listened to that over and over again. And as I was getting into stand up, so I kind of liked the White Stripes uh, dynamic and their aesthetic and everything about them. You know, like we're just going to have one drummer and one guitarist and we're going to make it work. You know, we're going to wear red and black. And we're going to make that work. And I just thought that was so cool to be minimalist. And so when Elephant came out, I was ready for it. I had heard Seven Nation Army and flipped over that. I mean, that, that's that been my walkout music uh, 90% of the time, I would say. When I do a TV show, I walk out to that song because it's just like, I describe that song as, you know how some songs make you want to run through a brick wall? Yeah. Seven Nation Army makes you want to walk through a brick wall. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like you just like you just don't you don't have to run. You just kind of strut and you just go through that wall. Like it's amazing to me that that song is played at at soccer arenas by the fans. They sing the baseline. It's amazing. So I went to and this was back in the day when you could do this. I went this was 2003. I believe it came out. Yeah, I went to I lived nearby uh, Virgin Records which was on like on at Crescent Heights and Sunset. And they, on Tuesday nights when records were released or on Monday night at midnight when records were released, they would stay up until 1230. So I drove over there, bought Elephant, just knowing that one song, got back in my shitty car that had like no gas. And I was like, I was poor as hell. Put it in my, my disc, man. Nice. Put the tape into my thing. And I drove around for four hours listening to the album over and over again, just like every new song. I just like couldn't believe it. it was just, it was like, it was an album just for me that I wasted all my gas that night. And then I just, I just played that album. My friends would steal it from me and I have to buy another copy of it, but I just played it over and over and everything was just, just perfect. I saw him a bunch of times on tour on that tour and just, just was obsessed was obsessed what that is i've that i just you brought me back to so many memories by saying waiting for the album to come out it's like something that we just don't do anymore um i did that with with wu-tang forever i left a i left a my high school graduation party to go get it uh and with this record i always because it's so weird you mentioned the strokes and i always looked and lumped the white stripes in with those bands like the strokes the hives, the vines, they were like this reaction to Limp Biscuit and like hair metal and all the music prior to it. And out of all of them, I kind of was like, yeah, the strokes are great. Like, is this it? Is a fantastic record? The, the hives and vines, whatever. But there was something about white blood cells that I didn't really get. I didn't really get to vibe with the white stripes until I heard ball and a biscuit off of this, because that just completely blew me away. And that was the first moment where I was like, Oh, Holy shit. Like this is a band that isn't just seven nation army and fell in love with a girl. Like this is a fucking real band that is, that is doing something, you know? Yes. It's, it's like an imitation of, of, you know, the, the black blues music, and but they're doing a version of it 
that is the white stripes. It's it's you can hear where they're influenced, but there is something about this band that is so them. It's not like he's trying to sing like a black guy because because Jack White cannot do that. And it's not like Meg is trying to drum like a black dude because she can barely drum just in general. Like she is is just doing what she knows how to do. And so but I, the- I love that about them. I love that she was not a professional drummer. People would be like, oh, if they had a good drummer, if they had a bass player, like that's not the point. The point, I love that Jack White would always say, I want to make it hard. I want to play guitars that are hard to play. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to just like, I want to have to spend half my time on stage keeping Meg on beat. You know, I loved watching them perform live and him just having to stare at her and keep her on beat the whole time. It just, I just loved them. I thought they were both like the epitome of cool. And I hated people who were anti-Meg White. Hated them. Still too. Well, you know, it's funny because when we did White Blood Cells, Bill Burr was our guest and he is a drummer and was like, dude, and he broke down why Meg is actually good and why she's good for this. And there's tracks on this record where, you know, where even in Seven Nation Army, it's like she does this offbeat where it's like, oh, well, even if she just learned how to play the drums a few years ago, the fact that she can do that is something that, you know, there's something to be said about that. As far as this record it's listen i i am not putting this record down at all with what i'm about to say i think the 14 songs that are on it are great i think there's a couple that you know you probably could have shaved off maybe two or three but that's but then as i started doing all the research on it and finding out that you know when white blood cells came out that was when they got the uh the record labels behind them that's when you know they finally have this this corporate team in a sense kind of promoting them and then when they did this record and they have all the money to basically record a record like the way that everybody else does it in this lavish studio with video games and all the food that you could ask for when when Jack was like, so we can give you this. And Jack's like, no, 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 no. I want to go to this shitty ass studio in London. I want none of the equipment to be more current than 1963. I'm going to play on this guitar that was like made in the, uh, I want to say the late sixties. Yeah. Fifties or sixties, but he's basically playing on this primitive, like, like machinery. And, and he's like, and we are going to do this in two weeks. And what we get is what we get. Cause he looked at making albums where it's like when these people go in there for like six, seven, eight months and they come out with what they think is a masterpiece. He's like, that's not how you do it, man. You, you come in with an idea, you fucking bang it out. And that's what you get. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the opposite of the Chinese democracy approach, you know, where you're going to spend 20 years and it's just going to get worse and worse. You know, I loved when, when Jack White produced Loretta Lynn's album. Uh, she was, she was like, can't we do another take? I can do better. And he's like, no, 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 this is great. And the album was a masterpiece. He knew that it, you only needed, you just write the song, make it great. And then just bang it out. And you can feel that when you're listening to it. And I, I love that about that, the album and the white stripes. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. All right, let's dive into the record. Um, because it opens with the song we've already mentioned, probably the most iconic line in the last 10 years, uh, Peter play it. Oh my god, I fucking love that song so much And that's what's so funny about music Because 
unlike you, where you heard that and were like, I love this. I want to hear the rest of the record. I was, because I hadn't really fully grasped how dope Jack White was at the time. I was just like, God, this song again. And then they're playing it on HFS or on K-Rock or whatever the station is. And it wasn't until years later, until you go to like, a, you said, like go to a sporting event and everybody starts singing it. I mean, there's something about it that just this energy uh, with this song. And it's so fucking simple. Yeah. Which is, which is brilliant. You know, I love that they kept themselves in a box creatively. Uh, like, we're only going to have these instruments. And they kind of experiment a little more on this one. He plays an organ at one point. I think they have a bass player at some point. I don't understand that. As someone who doesn't understand music that well, I just knew drums and guitar. And this guy wails on guitar. He's a guitar god. And, uh, and I just loved, and especially when you see him live, it sounds even better. Than on, than, than on the record. And he is just putting on a show with that guitar. It's just the way he moves is incredible. Oh, yeah, dude. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What's up, everyone? This is Jay Reason. I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo, a.k.a. Lord Ezak, interview artists from the hardcore punk, metal, hip-hop scenes, and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, L.A. street photographer Estevan Oriol, Jimmy G. from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law, and pro wrestler Vampiro, to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions, lots of laughs, tune in and join the fun. I love that you mentioned how they look at each other when they play, and he's got mics set up all around the stage so he can do one in front of Meg. He can go out and look at the audience. It's badass. So the riff for this was first played at a sound check before a gig in Melbourne, Australia. Although it sounds like a bass, it's Jack on his semi-hollow guitar through an effects pedal that drops the output to a lower octave. I wonder if he even had any idea how special this song was because i know it's like i mean obviously he probably did because he's like no i want to open the record with it but i'm just curious if he had any idea like how iconic this would be because i mean and let me get your opinion i think in this is probably one of the most iconic songs written in the last 10 years it's definitely in the top 10 possibly in the top five your thoughts I absolutely agree. Uh, definitely top 10, if not top five. I could, I mean, there's an argument for number one. I remember reading an article about Jack White kind of figuring out what a hit this was going to be. And one of his friends saying like, how many songs do, can people just like as an audience, like a crowd, just sing along to the baseline? Like it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's not done. You know, you can do like da na 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 hey in a stadium, but that's, that's fucking Gary Glitter bullshit. To do this song and have it be awesome is just, he just hit the sweet spot, the sweet spot of simplicity. And he's not a pedophile like Gary Glitter. Yeah, you know, I, I forgive Gary. <laughs> I forgive Gary for that. He put out some great songs. He deserves, he deserves to be happy. Wait, does he have more songs besides rock and roll part, whatever the fuck that song is called? He's got <laughs> hey and he's got like one other one. 
but he's been in jail for quite some time. Quite some Ever time. Since they yeah. dragged him out of Thailand. <laughs> they had to drag him. Um, this is a funny story. I found out about this. So this title comes from how Jack misunderstood the Salvation Army organization's name as a kid. So he took his interpretation and built a song about a character who comes back to his town and has to deal with the same sort of gossipy people that Jack and Meg were experiencing with dating after fame. Um, something I thought to be really funny was, um, the record company did not want them to release this as the first single. Jack had to fight them. Uh, I'm assuming the song that he probably was going to release, they wanted to release would probably be hardest button to button. Um, but black math, maybe hardest button to button black math. I think, uh, um, ball and a biscuit's a little bit too long, but yeah, I'd say one of those, one of those three. But also Jack has said that the main riff was what he'd use if he'd gotten asked to write a song for a James Bond film. Um, But uh, he actually did get to do it in 2008 with Alicia Keys. Not going to lie. Love this album. Love this song. Do not like their James Bond song. You compare it to other James Bond songs. I I, I like it more than others, but it's not going to be. If if I I put on my Jack White mix and that came on, I'm skipping it. But I, I didn't I didn't hate it. No, I didn't hate it. It's no of you to a kill, bro. It's no of you. Listen, to a kill. no one's saying that. No one's saying that. Let's not All get right. crazy. All right. Black math. All right. But so you, th- but, you know, to go back to him saying going back to his home, like going back to town and being famous all of a sudden, this was their last Detroit album. After, after this blew up, after uh, Elephant blew up, they left Detroit. They had to get the hell out of there and go to Nashville because they said the, the community turned on them. They were too famous. And that's when he's beating up the Von Bondies. You know, that's when he's getting into fights and uh, and Meg's kind of withdrawing into herself that they. Yeah, that was the end of their Detroit. time. Their Detroit Do you time. you're you're from Pittsburgh, right? Mm-hmm. Do you get a lot of hometown love like the way, you know, or do you have to you experience the same shit that that Jack experienced with Detroit? Uh, it's different than what Jack experienced because Jack like came up through there and was like, I didn't build myself in Pittsburgh. You know, I left Pittsburgh, went to New Orleans, then L.A. and built myself there. So when I go back to Pittsburgh, they don't know I'm from Pittsburgh. Really? They think that I have to remind them that I'm like upper St. Clair class in 97. And then they're like, oh, wow, cool, because I, they think I'm from L.A. So they, I mean, I have fans in Pittsburgh, but it's not like this big homecoming. You know, I have, I have better, I have better, I draw better in Denver than I do in Pittsburgh because they just don't think of me as a Pittsburgh guy. I'm not Billy Gardell. Yeah. You know, just sure. talking about the Steelers for 60 minutes, you know, nothing wrong with that. But they, yeah, I mean, I love Pittsburgh. Uh, my family's still there, but, uh, but no, not a, not a, uh, not a big Pittsburgh guy. You don't have a five minute bid on Jerome Bettis? No, I, I kept trying to get in the wall of Permani brothers and they kept refusing. And I was like, okay, once you guys put me on that wall, then I'll know I'm a real, a real Pittsburgher. Yeah, dude. All right. Uh, black math. All right. So what I'm about to play might be uh, my favorite moment on the entire record. Peter, play it. What I love about it is this song goes from this like transition from this this hard fast like you know I don't even call it punk or whatever it is to this slow and and just intense like it's phenomenal almost the cadence of hip hop and it's just something you wouldn't expect on this record to suddenly come up like that. 
Yeah, I mean, hearing you play right now reminds me, like it brings me back to driving around in my car, listening for the first time, trying not to pump the brakes along to the song. You know what I mean? Like when that comes on, it's just surprising. And I love songs that surprise you, especially when it's just this like, din, 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 and then it just switches up and it's still just as badass. Like it's just, it's, it's an amazing part of an amazing song. It, it's almost, it makes it even more badass. It takes it to another level of badassery. All right. So uh, this is about finding your own way. Jack explained, I was thinking about a time in high school when I turned my books into the math teacher and said, I refuse to learn from you anymore. The song is about asking questions. A lot of people are taught just to regurgitate information. People don't care if you learn anymore. Opinion gets trampled on. How do you think about that? What he said? Um, I think it sounds very anti-school, which is something that I would have felt, you know, when I was 18. Uh, by the time I listened to this album, I was out of college and never thought about school again. But I had similar feelings to school of why did you kind of uh, treat me like, like this? But since then, I've kind of softened towards school. You know, my, my high school that I, that I was miserable in and kind of made me become a comic has since brought me back and given me an award. You know, which kind of like kind of takes the anger out of you for school. And now I'm 42 years old. I don't want to be mad about high school anymore. So I get what he's saying. And I think he could also get into that character of an alienated 18 year old kid well into his 30s. And even now that that I uh, that I I, I, um, I empathized with it. You know, I understood kind of what he was saying and and just that. And I love the way that he didn't really complain. He just got really angry. You know what I mean? That I love that part of it. There was like a swagger to him getting out of school. It wasn't like everyone's mean to me. I don't understand these classes I'm leaving. It was like, fuck this. I don't need this. Yeah. And I, and I love that. Can you imagine like what he was like in high school? Just like, dude, you can see that like six foot four pale kid with weird hair. <laughs> yeah. Who's got like 20 brothers. Yeah, <laughs> Does he have 20? <laughs> oh, he's, he's like the, he's, I think he is the seventh son of a, I think he's like the youngest of seven. Yes. Yeah. You're right. I was uh, talking about so and yeah, so I was wondering, and he was just in his room, like it seems like making his own music back then. I don't know if he ever went to class. No, probably not. When did you first make your break from the establishment? <sighs> I mean, pretty early on. I remember having to go to CCD. Do you know what that is? Oh yeah, that was like the Christian thing, right? It's like it's like if you if you did if you were Catholic and didn't go to Catholic school, I went to public school, so I had to go to CCD like every Tuesday from like first grade on. And in like third grade, I realized this was all bullshit. And I was like, oh, they're just making a sit here. This is almost like babysitting. I really feel like school for a lot of people is babysitting. And then I just said, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to read my own books. And pretty much from there on out, I was a teacher's worst nightmare because I'd be in honors classes, but still be the class clown. And they just, they just did not like me. And everything I, everything I used, like when I got that award from my high school, I said, I, I've got famous and rich based on doing everything you told me not to do. Like if I'd listened to any of you ever, or ever listen to my parents once, I would not be standing where I am right now. Fuck yeah, dude. Fuck yeah. You're like, fuck you, CCD teacher. It's like, I'm reading the fucking Communist Manifesto. Um, What were you? What's a third grader? Like 12? No. No, that's like that's like eight, eight or nine. Eight or nine, dude. What yeah. a badass eight or nine. That's not, you know what? I can kind of, uh, I can kind of empathize with what you went through because when I was in Hebrew school, I told my uh, Hebrew school teacher she dressed like a prostitute. Wow, I did not do that. I was just like, I don't believe this Jonah and the whale bullshit. Yeah, and if I don't believe that, then this all falls apart. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, there's no home for you here, uh, Peter. Play taste. <laughs> there's no more you here. Don't go away. There's no more you here. 
So, for such a minimalist band, uh, this is very queeny. Yes. yes. Do you know what it's I like, mean? It's, it's a badass breakup song. It's like a breakup song. I'm not like, I've got to leave you. It's like, there's no room for you here. And I'll never forget this song. Because when I had when I was really into white blood cells, I was dating a girl and my girlfriend from college. And we went to a record store and I bought this. I bought it for her. I bought her uh, white blood cells. And I was like, oh, you'll love this. I love this. And we would listen to it together all the time. And then we broke up right before Elephant came out. But I still loved her. We still talked to her friends. So before I even heard the album, I sent her a copy. I like went through some like CD thing and I sent it to her place in college, not knowing that almost every song is like, fuck you, ex-girlfriend. And so, so I get a phone call. I listen to the album and I'm like, oh my God, I hope she doesn't take this literally. And then she's like, there's no home for you here? Like, is that what you've been trying to tell me? Like, are you, and I was like, I was sending you a present. I was, this is a peace offering. And she never, she never forgave me. <laughs> uh, and also you're addicted to pain pills. They talk about that at the end of the album. Um, mm-hmm. That's great, dude. That is hilarious. I did that too. Like I made a mixtape for a girl back. Oh God, I was probably 12 or 11 or 12. And I opened the mixtape with one in a million by uh, Guns N' Roses. Do you, do you remember that song at all? So do you remember it just has, it's just like racial slurs throughout it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been my choice for a mixtape. Yeah, it's probably, probably all my idea. Um, she was a Holocaust denier. So I think she kind of got it. Um, all right. Next song. I just don't know what to do with myself. So this second single is a Burt Bacharach and Hal David cover. That was Meg's idea to add to their live set. Uh, it does have a part that makes me laugh in it. Uh, Peter, play 120. I Just that, that, like, ah! <laughs> it's just, I don't know why, but that just, that's humorous to me. But I loved it because I, like, I knew of Burt Bacharach a little bit, but I didn't know that much. And Burt Bacharach, and I'm mispronouncing everything, but uh, the way they covered it made it so cool that that song has been stuck in my head almost ever since. Like, I find myself singing it all the time, and I sing their version. It just, it just took a song that's, that you would have thought was corny and made it just cool as hell through sheer force of will. Yeah, no, for sure. This was uh, first recorded and released in 64 by Dusty Springfield. I just don't know what to do with myself. Don't know just what to do with myself. I'm so used to doing wow. everything with you. I'm not into it. No, it's it's not it's not even the same song. I mean you can hear it, but it's not even like it's just that's why I think this version is so dope, is to be able to like, I mean, he completely put his spin on this, and that's really yeah, yeah. fucking impressive. And uh, it's almost like the way he did Jolene. It's like a guy singing Jolene is so much different than a woman singing Jolene. That like a woman talk, saying these same things sounds much different coming from a guy screaming them. 
Yeah. You know, it just makes it so much heavier. And the emotion is there. And he's talking about these banal things like going to see movies and stuff, but with this like with this pure raw emotion coming out of him that I that I totally reacted to. Completely. Um, all right, moving on in the cold, cold night. Uh, Peter, play a taste. I can't stand it any longer. I need the fuel to make my fire bright. So don't fight it any longer. Come to me again in the cold, cold night. In the cold, cold night. So we got Meg singing, which is probably why it has no drums on it besides a few scattered cymbal hits. What I love about this song is it's very sweet hearing her voice, especially after what we've already been through on the record. I'll tell you what I love about this song is that it seems like it's almost like an intermission. You know, it's like, and I always thought of the White Stripes, people think of it as just Jack White. I really thought of it as Jack and Meg in a partnership, even if one's doing more of the work, it's 50-50. So it's nice to hear her sing. Uh, it, like you don't mind it in the like this album's rocking out and then you get this and it's okay it's like two minutes long maybe what i really love is seeing them live several times on this tour is how much she hates singing that fucking song <laughs> he has to make her he has yeah. to like convince her over he'd be like you want to do this and she's like no 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 and like they play another song how about no 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 and then finally she gets up the crowd goes crazy and she sings it and everyone loves it but she is miserable yeah. miserable doing it even though she knocks it out of the park well she was, I, uh, I i always loved it she's she wasn't even a drummer i mean they were dating and and he was like hey my other band broke up why don't you play drums and let's stick around so she's not that she never had these aspirations to be a rock star let alone be as big as they became because i mean by the time that you saw them for this record i'm assuming they're playing far bigger than the viper room they're probably playing like like oh, I saw the, them at the Greek and like yeah. and like uh, Hard Rock in Vegas, uh, um, and uh, she never. Not only did she not like want to be a rock star, she never wanted to get better at drumming. Like Jack said, the first time they played, he said she just played like a child would play. If the child just picked up the drums for the first time, and he loved that about her, and never wanted her to lose it. That I love that she wasn't like trying to do technical shit. She was just like, "All right, get me through this song," <laughs> yeah. and that's part of the band. I never understood people hating on her for it. I, I loved her for it. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about voices. Uh, how long did it take you to find your comedic voice? Comedic voice, I'd say about a year and a half. Really? Uh, yeah. Because I, I, start, I took a class and I started out, they're like, just talk about your life, talk about yourself. But I'm 23 years old. I got nothing to say to anybody. Yeah. And I hated it. And listening to, you know, the Hives album I would listen to all the time on my way to open mics. And then this album I would listen to a lot that it was just like, let's be more simple. And then I started telling jokes. And then I think some of the Jack White got in me. I started telling like a meaner joke. And once I had a mean one liner with like a mean twist, the audience at the open mic, they all just went, oh, and I knew I had this like minimalist, badass cool thing and i thought i wanted to be cool like jack white is still cool even though he's covered in sweat dancing all around the stage i thought if i can just stand there and just hold the mic stand and i'm just very still you don't know anything about me i love that jack white would say his meg was his sister he'd make up all these lies about himself i thought that is cool and i kind of like funneled that into my voice and once i found that i'm going to be mean and cool i thought this is my voice and i can do it forever it's not a lot of effort i'm not yelling I barely break a sweat on stage. You know, I, I remember someone, I, someone was like, I didn't know you could bend your knees until I saw you sit down after the show, the way you are on stage. And that's my voice. 
And I, and I loved it. <laughs> I love that. Dude, I have, dude, your feet work? I have no idea. That is great, dude. All right. Um, I want to be the boy to warm your mother's heart. All right. So we know that Jack has this longing for the era of gentlemen and ladies and courtship. So it makes sense he'd write something about wanting to gain the respect and acceptance of his girlfriend's mom. Um, he's What I love about Jack is that he is super old-timey. Do you know what I mean? There's something about him, at least, you know, maybe not so much like his style during this record, but every time you've seen him, it's like he dresses like he's in the movie Cold Mountain, which he was. So to me, it seems like he probably like raided the wardrobe and just kept it. Um, but there is this kind of old timey innocence about oh, he's him. Written, he's written multiple songs about Rita Hayworth, you know, like that kind of old timey, like not like I want to go back there. Not like we things were better then. Just I really like that old school, classic Hollywood kind of thing, that I and, and old school music for sure. Thing. So and also this has uh, the best part of this song is the riff. Uh, Peter play one fifty one, bro. Even even the choice of using that slide guitar right there, it just has a very, just an older feel. I hate saying old timey. I don't even know that's an actual word or descriptive word, but it that's what it feels like to me. Thoughts on this? Definitely old timey, almost like a um, like a socky bottom boys kind of thing, you know. Uh, but also, I like that the character he's playing is not like a good person. Like, there's a reason the mom does not like him. You know, it's I I kind of see them like in a coal mining town. And it's like the, it's a, the only daughter and she wants nothing to do with him. And he's not even trying. There's something sinister about not trying to win over the girl. He's trying to win over the girl's mom. It's like it's almost for the sake of performance or like what he thinks he has to do being in this town. That I thought, even though it's a very sweet love song about wanting the girl's mom to love you, there's something fucked up about that, you know? If he change out mom for sister and it's even worse, you know what I mean? It's like he's not talking about her heart. He feels like he already has it and just thinks if I can just get your mom, then I can have you. And that just seems like a misplaced, not like a Elvis Costello, I hate women kind of thing, but just like a, I'm not really sure what I'm doing but I'm doing my best because I have a big heart. Yeah. He's like, what kind of cartwheels do I have to pull? What kind of joke should I lay on her now? Should I go back and to high school? He sounds mad when he says it. Yeah. yeah. He's like, I'm trying everything. Like what, like what do you, what does she need? What trick does she need to get her? Have you ever had to do it? Have you ever done something to like, you know, woo the parents of someone you were dating? Not enough, apparently. I mean, I, <laughs> I felt like in high school, all the parents always loved me. Like my, my girl, if I dated someone, the parents loved me. And then after high school, it changed. Where they were like, keep away from this guy. Like, are you sure this is the guy you want? He makes you happy? Okay. And then we break up. They'd be like, see? Like, see? We told you. The parents took a, uh, took a, took a turn from me after, uh, after high school. They're like, oh, you're still going to act like this in your 20s? Okay. <laughs> yeah. They're okay. like, dude, I, uh, why would you want to date him? He doesn't bend his knees. Yeah. You're like, yeah. that's what you're like. You're like, nah, the, dude, check this The guy who wants to be a comedian? Yeah, date that guy. <laughs> yeah. Hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. 
Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is a rock and roll city for sure. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. All right, you've got her in your pocket. Uh, Peter, play a little taste. And in your own mind, you know you're lucky just to know her. And in the beginning, all you wanted was to show So featuring only Jack, uh, this tender acoustic ballad was written right after they debut with the intention of giving it to a local band to cover. But Jack thought it was too personal and saved it. Uh, thoughts on this? I th- I, again, I think it's a very sweet, sinister ballad. You know, he's, t- he's talking about a girl that he like met, didn't even really like and then kind of took her. And has her in his pocket, which is not a romantic thing to say. Like if saying you've got me in your pocket, you've got me wrapped around your finger, that's romantic. Saying I've got you in my pocket or I've got you've got her in your pocket is not romantic. It's just almost like you took her and no one else can have her now. You know, not so much because she's special, but because she affected you in some way and you didn't want anyone else to have her. So you, you took her and to, and to sing it like, and if it was, if this, if this wasn't a ballad, if this wasn't just him on guitar, if he was like on electric raging, it would sound like an angry song, but it sounds so sweet when it's anything but, and I love shit like that. Dude, that was perfect. Now I, I, I completely, completely agree with you. Any other way this song is, is just people are like, what the fuck? So that's fantastic. I wanted to ask you because, you know, I know your work on the comedy central roast, but you also worked uh, for Jimmy Fallon for what a year and then you quit. And, and, and it's just, I'm not saying that you can't write for him, but like knowing your style after knowing you for a few years and having watching you and enjoyed you, how did you tailor your material for other people? I didn't. Uh, and I don't, you know, I've written for several people. I've written for Robert Smigel, Jimmy Kimmel, Sarah Silverman on like little things. And if I like the joke, they like the joke too. I just wrote my own stuff. Like the difference between a comedy writer and a comedian who's writing is a comedy writer tailors their voice for whoever they're working with. They can write for Jimmy Fallon. They can write for Seth MacFarlane, anybody. A comedian comes in and you better you, – you hire them for their voice. And that's what I'd always been doing. So when I got to Jimmy Fallon, they were trying to find the voice of the show. And I'm still doing my thing. And they're like, Jimmy can't say these jokes. We all think they're funny. But we, Jimmy has to be likable. These are too mean. (laughs) And I just didn't know how to change that. So I tried to write other stuff, but it wasn't good. It wasn't me. You know, and I just kept my complaint at Fallon was, why am I here? I know you all like me, but like, why did you hire me? And I think in the beginning of the show, they thought we might need this. We might need this voice. And the show was a hit out of the gate. So they kind of just, they, they kept me around and liked me, but I did not get much on the show. Do you remember, do you remember anything that you wrote that he never, never said? 
like one of your favorites? Yes, I had one. And I actually opened with this joke when I had the Jessel Nick offensive because I was like, I, I pushed for this joke for like months. And Jimmy would laugh and then someone would talk him out of it right before showtime for weeks. And it was uh, um, a new study says that the, uh, the birth control pill may not be effective in obese women. Doctors are telling those women, don't worry about it. <laughs> and they would laugh and then they go, Jimmy, it's just going to make heavy women hate you. And yeah. he, he would never do it. And I was like, but if it's funny and they just didn't like funny, wasn't the point. It's nice. But being likable is the point. It's better to bomb with a like a corny joke and then make them laugh with your response than it is to make them laugh at a joke about like a disabled person. And afterward, after they stop laughing, they don't like you. And my whole thing is I'm going to make you not like me and still laugh. And so it did not it did not work well. At, at, at <laughs> dude, that's a great fucking joke, dude. I'm glad you got to do it. All right. We're at I mean, probably. I mean, this is this guy. I mean, this is probably my favorite song off the record. Ball in a biscuit. It's such a banger. It's the longest song on the record at over seven minutes. It's basically, and that's what's so cool about this. It's basically just a twelve-bar blues, uh, heavily influenced by Willie Dixon's nineteen fifty-five song, "The Seventh Son." Now, although there are sexual innuendos in the lyrics, the title actually refers to the nickname of the vintage STC 4021 microphone that was at Rag Studios where Elephant was recorded. No, I had no idea. I thought for sure it was something sexual. It's like a, like a, I'm, I'm a backdoor man. You know what I mean? Thinking like, I, oh, I'm just singing that. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, he's talking about anal. You know, like <laughs> I thought it was one of those that like it's an old timey slang uh, and it just sounds dirty. It does sound dirty. Uh, everything about this song is perfect. Uh, oh, but rips. But just rips. But my favorite shit is right before he drops into his solo, he always says something. So this is my favorite one. Peter, play 346, bro. We'll get clean together, and I'll find me a soapbox where I can shout it. It's just so fucking good because I could listen to the whole thing. Um, when he right, plays so- this live, it's the most incredible fucking thing ever. It's incredible. I, I do not play guitar. I could not kick guitar down the stairs. I have spent hours of my life air guitaring by myself to this song as if I was playing it. It's impossible not to. It's impossible not to. It's impossible not to. Also, that was the coolest shit about the fact that that on the Burr episode of Saturday Night Live, like he played this, uh, you know, when he did the two songs, he did Lazaretto and he did this. uh, And it's just, it was phenomenal. The coolest shit about this song, besides the fact that it just keeps building and building and building where each solo gets crazier and noisier, is that, this song, it's not just a, a, a great rock song. So I used to DJ at a strip club. Uh, I did it for six years as I was building my career in stand-up. Oh, I was a doorman at a strip club. Which one? Uh, Rick's Cabaret on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. Oh, okay. Actually, oh, holy shit, dude. I When I went down there, when I was working on Keeping Up with the Kardashians, we went down to, to Bourbon Street to clear it so the girls could go into each, you know, like we went to different bars and I had him sign off. And then we went to Rick's and I like, I was like, Hey, you know, we're going to be shooting here later. And they were like, Oh, well you should come back. Even if you guys don't shoot. And I went and I hooked up with a stripper that night. Ah, yeah, Didn't have to pay. 
But I got nice. violently ill. I got violently ill the next day. Uh, don't know if it's from the stripper. Have no it's idea. Pos- it's, it's possible. When I when I was a doorman there, I got to know the strippers, and it made me never want to go in a strip club again, because you get to know like what the the fantasy is gone. That like fantasy of they like doing this and they think I'm cute. Like they were just like, let's get these fucking idiots money and get the fuck out of here. You know, like they they hated everybody. That and then I went back to Rick's after because I went to college before Katrina. And then I came back after Katrina and stopped by Rick's to say hello. And everyone was gone. They were like, no one you know from before is still here. And this place is now the worst strip club on the, in the city instead of the best. It's not a good place to be. You know what's funny? All right, so two things. Uh, one, I just want to focus it on this song, but I want to pick up what you just said. So I worked day shift at this one club where you could get away with playing rock and roll. And I would just be like, dude, I was like, you know, I play it for certain girls. And then there was this this black chick named Isis. I don't know if you can use that name anymore because it's like 2009. But she was like, can you play that one song with the long, with the guitar solos? And I put it on. And that became like her song. So this song transcends you know, cultures, it's that good. Uh, I would think Isis, though, would be a great name for a stripper now because you could just be like, I give the best head. <laughs> we should get back into the fucking strip club world and start pushing that <laughs> shit, dude. You know what's funny? And this you mentioned it where everybody at your club wasn't there anymore. So something that I do, and I do it uh, once a year, I'd say, because I'm not a strip club guy. I never have been. Um, but what I do is I used to work at one in downtown LA called dames and games. It was the last club I worked at. And now if I ever do a show in like San Diego or in Irvine and I drive up the 10, I drive on the five up to the 10. I always stop in there just so I can remind myself why I need to keep working hard, why I can't go back on opiates, why I have to stay focused because I know everybody left the club you were working at, dude there's still like five or six girls that I remember that are still there. And then there's the DJ, the fucking DJ, this dickhead named JP who took my shifts, which was actually a blessing because I used to work Friday and Saturday night. And he, he was in with the manager and he got him to take me off and that got me to quit, but he's still there. And it's almost like I see him and I'm like, dude, that could be fucking me, dude. So yeah, I mean, you know, dames and games, Rick's cabaret, you know, well, actually right now, uh, because I don't really have, we, you know, we're not touring. So if you're hiring, you think the strip clubs are open right now? No, probably not. You think that's COVID safe? <laughs> no, God, no. They probably do it like, like Hasidic Jews do and like put a sheet up. So you're just like, you're just like touching the sheet. I, so I wanted to ask you because, you know, like your onstage persona is so just, you know, you're, it's so re- defined. It's so a certain way. And people see you as, like you said, this cool, fucking like just just sharp ass dude what is the most misunderstood thing about you Mm, i mean it's hard because like i i try not to put too much of myself out there i think the most understood thing is that people think that i like i do dark humor that doesn't mean i want to hear your dark humor you know i mean if someone's like oh this this you got to hear this comedian they're so dark i'm not interested you know give me nate bargatze you know, give me Todd Glass. Give me someone that I can laugh at. I want absurdity that just because I do this and I consider myself like a dark comedy god that I just don't want to hear from other people because it's like, no, this is what I do. I don't want to, I don't want to have someone, you know, taking an idea from me 
or hearing someone do something I would want to do later on. So I avoid all of that. People are always like, oh, I've got this joke you'd love to hear. And nine times out of 10, it's some racist joke. I've got to cut them <laughs> off halfway through. But people just think that I'm like some kind of monster and love that. It's like, no, I like the skill of joke writing. I just happen to go dark because I like that. But I'm not into uh, people are like people expect me to have like people don't expect me to be like a left winger you know, who's like for trans rights. They expect me to have like anti-trans Dave Chappelle material. And I just don't. I'm like, I'm sorry. I vote like a black woman. You know, I, <laughs> I know I know, I seem like a monster on stage. I get that out there. But off stage, you'll find me to be a completely different person. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was talking to, uh, I have a, I don't know if you know this comedian, uh, Justine Marino. And when I told her I was, I was recording with you, you guys did a set together at the comedy store and you guys talked for a minute and she was just like, he's so nice and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and She's like, and the funny thing was, I didn't think he was going to be because I'd only seen his stand up. And, and I was like, yeah, dude, he's the best. And then she goes, and what's even funnier is on that same night, there was another comic. I'm not going to say who it is, but they're like kind of their whole onstage persona is very Christian-y and like wholesome. And when she when you left, he was in the room and she started talking to him and he was like a fucking dick to her. Always. That's I mean, that's one of the things, the reasons I'm like, why are you mad at me for being a jerk on stage when everyone who's nice on stage is a dick off stage? Like, of course I'm going to be nice because I could not be meaner than I am out there. It's very easy to be nice. But the guys who like, you, you, you feel like you can give them a hug after their set. Those are the guys who hate you and want nothing to do with anybody. So I've always, I've, I've never really trusted, you know, the clean, the squeaky clean comedians. It's, it's the, it's the people like me and you that I'm like, okay, these guys have some demons. Let's go. Fuck yeah, dude. All right. Hardest button to button. Uh, this song is not about buttons. Contrary to popular belief. It's about the feeling of rejection. A kid feels from their family, such as when a new baby is born that gets all the attention. And Jack explained it by saying there's a button at the top of my Navy pea coat and it's the hardest button to button. And I thought that was a great metaphor for the off man out in the family. Uh, best part about this song is the opening verse. Peter, play it. We started living in an old house. My market birth and we were checking. I love everything about this song. I love the fucking beat. I love his lyrics. I love his storytelling in it. I love the music video for this, where it's just like yes, that, that maybe thing. my favorite music video of theirs. And they've done they've done some bangers. They've had some great directors, some really cool things. This one is amazing to watch. And I had no idea it was about a new baby coming into the family and feeling left out. I thought the I, I thought when he was talking about a baby, I thought it was more of like talking about like an idea that he had had. You know what I mean? That I, did, I had no idea it was literally a baby. Obviously, he probably dealt with some form of if there's seven people in his family or even four. I mean, I've got two nieces and a nephew and the middle child who's who's like my I don't want to. She's not going to hear this. She's my favorite. But like she's got that fucking chip on her shoulder, especially with the younger ones. So I think that's such a cool metaphor to use to describe something that so many people have experienced and let alone they probably have no idea that's what he's talking about i think there was a big age gap between him and his older siblings that he was pretty much on his own it sounded like it didn't sound like he got his music from his older brother like a lot of people did it seemed like he was on his own with his friends grabbing stuff and picking it up and doing it himself do you come from a big family 
Oldest of five. Oldest of five. Five kids in seven years. It's me, three girls, and then my brother is seven years younger than me. So did you experience anything that's going on in the song? A little bit in that, you know, I was the only child and then my sister came along and that was fine. Then all of a sudden it was just more girls and more girls. And the family didn't have as much time for me. I mean, they would, they would try to keep the kids doing activities. So I spent a lot of time reading and I was happy to. I didn't think of it as I'm being left out or I'm not being included. But looking back, yeah, I mean, if I had been an only child, I would have had a lot more one-on-one time with my parents and probably done more activities. But I was always happy being alone anyway, that it didn't. I never felt alienated. And now I'm happy to have, you know, a lot of siblings in a big family. So what was the, what do you, would you say is the weirdest thing about you when you were a kid? I think just that I was, I was very into reading. I learned to read at a very early age. I went like Montessori school and they taught me. And I just became, I read adult books faster than kids would get to. So while kids were reading Encyclopedia Brown, I was reading American Psycho. (laughs) <laughs> you know, shit like so. I, yeah. People just thought I'm crazy, and it would drive me nuts because I would say I'm just talking about dark subjects. That like you're making these dark jokes about death and stuff, and you're making people uncomfortable. And I would say, well, the greatest minds of all time have been trying to figure out what happens after we die, and been obsessed with death. Why am I weird just because I'm a kid? And it made me just not want to be a kid anymore. I wanted to be older always. Like I'm 42 now, and I'm happier than I've ever been until well, I can't wait to be 43. You know, like it just every year that I'm older, it's like what I, the way I am has become more acceptable. So as a kid, I was a weirdo and I didn't, I was like arguing back. I was like, I'm not weird at all. I might be different, but I don't understand why you guys are trying to make me like everybody else. That's not the point. <laughs> Your teacher's like, uh, pardon me, Mr. Jeselnik, can you put down less than zero? And you're like, all right, I'm on my third Brett Easton Ellis book. <laughs> they, they would say, Anthony, you make a joke and people laugh. But if you notice after they laugh, they're uncomfortable. I was like, well, what, what's wrong with that? I'm going to make a career out of that. Like, I don't see the problem here. Why am I in the office? Oh, it's great. All right. Little acorns. So this opens uh, with an introductory story about a lady who learned perseverance through her struggles by observing a squirrel spoken by longtime Detroit news anchor and writer Mort Krim. Uh, this is the best part, though. Peter Platt. Be like the squirrel, girl. Be like the squirrel. I love that he's saying, be like the squirrel. Uh, you know, I just, it's so funny because until I read this, the notes that Morty wrote me, I was like, no, nah, I have no idea what this song is about. I just, you know, it's probably him just being cool. Be like the squirrel. I didn't even put the two things together. Like I was paying attention to the Mort Krim part. But I also love that OOO. I don't know what that is about that. Like, it's very 80s, like, like fucking flock of seagulls. Like anytime I sing like some like bullshit new wave song, I'm like, oh, 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 oh. And I just fucking love it. Thoughts? This is my least favorite song on the album. Possibly my least favorite White Stripe song. Really? Like, I just, it's only, I think the intro, it's like you're rocking, you're rocking. And then all of a sudden this intro comes in that I didn't love. And then be like the squirrel. It just didn't pump me up the way that it made you want to like put the wall back together. You just ran through. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. it's not a bad song. It just seemed like it didn't fit on the album or what should have been a last track. But I, but it just, yeah, it, it always, uh, it always bothered me. Okay. Well then being that this is your least favorite song, what's your favorite song on the record? Hard not to say 
uh, ball in a biscuit. I mean, it's been overplayed at this point now, but hypnotize is amazing. And girl, you have no faith in medicine might be my dark horse because it's no one's favorite, but it just fucking rocks. Yeah. But yeah. Let's, yeah. let's go into, let's, let's do hypnotize. All right. So this is the shortest song on here and who hasn't wished they could hypnotize someone into falling in love with them. Best part is the breakdown. Peter play it. <laughs> shit comes back in you know what's great about this anthony is that for such a rocker of a song the lyrics are very vulnerable and very confident too i mean he says i want to hold your little hand if if i could be so bold and be be your right hand man till your hand gets old i mean that's that's beautiful old or cold and be your right hand man till your hand gets old. Why wow, you went with okay. cold? You went with dead? Yeah, I thought it was like until you're dead. I mean, very similar. The great thing about the white stripes is you can misread the lyrics. You can mishear them. And the song still rocks. Like the song still kind of makes sense. Where I've heard like found out the the actual lyrics have been a little disappointed. Like I liked my version better, you know? But uh, but yeah, again, this is another one that sounds sinister in that he's saying he wants to hypnotize her, he wants to make her his. But the song if he, if this was a ballad. It wouldn't sound so bad. It would sound sweet. Like he wants to like, he wants her to be obsessed with him. But the way he does it, it's almost like he doesn't have a choice. It's the only way he can get her is to, he wants these things from, he wants these like soft romantic things, but he has to hypnotize her to even have a shot at it. And hypnotizing someone, I get the feeling that the narrator in the song doesn't really believe in hypnotism. He just thinks that he doesn't have like a way to hypnotize her. He just wishes that could happen so, so that he could have this woman. And that's a sinister way to to uh, approach romance. What's the craziest thing you've done to win over a lady? I mean, bro, I don't have to do much. You know what I mean? Like, like eye contact. You know, uh, a meet and greet after the show. Yeah, it's. I haven't done. I haven't done insane. I mean, the most insane thing I've ever done is like go on a blind date uh, to meet someone, and I always regret it. No matter, no matter how amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but what yeah. about prior prior to you being Anthony Jeselnik? <sighs> prior to me being Anthony Jeselnik, like I, I you know, I always just kind of let him come to me. You know, I, I never really like, pined over someone. If like if I was into a girl and she wasn't into me, I was like, okay, like you're lost. If someone ever dumped me, I was like, you don't want to be with me, great. Like I never understood cheating. It was like if you want to cheat, just break up with me, we'll be fine. Uh, but I, I haven't had those sort of those sort of issues. Good for you. Not, dude. not that it's like I'm so amazing, I'm so great. It's just that I my mind just shuts off. If someone's like, ugh, get away from me, like I don't try again. You know, I'm not like if I say, Hey, do you want to dance? And they're like, No, I'm like, Okay, enjoy your night. Do you realize how much pain you have saved yourself from having from being able to do that? Like, I wish I could have fucking been able to do that throughout my life, man. That is <laughs> incredible. Dude, it's it's good for you, dude. Thank you. Good Thank you. Fucking so, you. I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to be the kid crying in his bedroom, you know, looking at a picture. That, that's yeah. me. Listening to REM. That's, that's not me. me. Except no REM. Listening to Stone Temple Pilots. Just like, <laughs> I'm half the man I used. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
the air near my fingers. Uh, the guitar has the same cadence in this song as it does for the Trogs 1966 garage rock anthem, Wild Thing. Uh, let's take a listen, Peter. <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but uh, the lyrics are influenced by Alfred Hitchcock's 1960s thriller Psycho's lead character Norman Bates as played by Anthony Perkins because Anthony Perkins had a difficult time shedding the public perception of Norman Bates. I had no fucking idea. And it makes me love it even more. What are your thoughts on this? Bobby? I had no idea. I mean, I always loved the song, but knowing about the uh, Anthony Perkins thing and not just like I met him as a person and you know, I thought he was a cool guy because other actors always talked about him in high esteem. And I can imagine he couldn't shake that uh, shake that role because he played. I mean, there was like Psycho 2. I don't know what else he was ever in but a great actor. But that uh, that just makes it even like a kind of a sadder and more badass of a song. Yeah. And actually, this is pretty funny too. Jack has said that this is one of his least favorite songs on the album and he wish he would have left it off the record. Really? Did you say why? Doesn't say. I, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe do you, all right, let's ask this. Does, does it, do you think this fits with the rest of the record? I do. I do. I do if you're listening straight through, would I just go and put this one on right away? No. But as you're listening through because of what comes after it, it's nice to have like a little bit of dip before it comes right back up. Cause some albums start out strong and they just get weaker and weaker as they go until it's like this ballad at the end where this one comes up and down that I think this song is almost setting up what comes next. Yeah, no, I agree with you. This, the, the next one we're going to talk about, I think, is it Girl, You Have No Faith in Medicine? Yes. Your yes, favorite song. That was supposed to be on the last album. And then Meg had a problem with one of the lyrics. Yes. And thought it was like too much. And I don't know what that lyric was that he changed to, to make it palatable for her on this new album. But when he sings it live, he'll sing, Meg, You Have No Faith in Medicine. Girl, you have no faith in medicine. Yes, this is so this like you said, this is Meg's least favorite song on the record. Well, I think it's because probably it's about the placebo effect on the sexes. So Jack put it like this. He goes, I suppose it is just about this tongue in cheek take on male and female relationships when things are bothering girls about headache medicine. Uh, aspirin, Tylenol, and things like that. It's like men can take anything like a sugar pill and it will make their headache go away. But there's always some sort of special care for women. It is sort of a metaphor for taking the time to care for someone, I guess. So... Yeah. yeah. When you say it like that, yeah, that's it's 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 brutal that I can see Meg being like, why did you even write this song? That's ridiculous and misogynistic. I saw it almost as like a later Jack White song. Uh, you don't know what love is. You just do what you're told kind of thing of like, girl, you have no faith in medicine is almost like you have no faith in me. Yeah. You know, you girl, you have no faith in love and what I can do for you. I never saw it as literally 
like you need you're you always have a headache you don't want to have sex you need you need Tylenol like it just seemed like a rocker to me and I would love to know what that one line is that he took out I, I couldn't find it I, I googled it and couldn't find I it. I mean looking looking over the lyrics right here and actually after going through that ex- explanation I mean yeah, I mean, you know, I, like I don't know much about Meg, so I don't know what she stands for or what would piss her off. But I mean, saying it the way that he said it, like I could see it being, you know, taken a certain way. And I wanted to ask you this because, you know, talking about people taking things a certain way. So you got to roast Donald Trump, right? Did you ever feel like partially responsible for humanizing him like enough to become president. Oh, in no way. And I thought I really did think that this was his reason for doing it because he came to Comedy Central and said, I want you to roast me. And I thought maybe he's doing this so that we'll all get the jokes out and then you can't make fun of him going forward. And it didn't feel like that was the case. It felt like he was still kind of a joke afterwards. And then after that, after that roast was the famous White House Correspondents Dinner where Obama just destroyed him in a way that I couldn't even believe. And they say that was like what really made him want to run for president was being so humiliated at that event. So we just treat it as a joke. And I thought he was a great, perfect roast candidate because you couldn't make people feel bad for him. No matter what you said about Donald Trump, and I said horrible things about him, everyone just went crazy because he was such a, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest uh, I'm the richest, I'm the richest, that you nothing would ever make you feel bad about him. So uh, I didn't feel responsible at all. I was glad that I got to get it out of the way before half the comedians in the country burned four years of their lives yelling at him on Twitter. <laughs> uh, I, could, I could say, listen, I already did this. Um, but yeah, it was a, uh, it was, it was a, a weird, you know, it's weird to have your big break be, uh, be roasting someone who ends up becoming president. Yeah, dude. Uh, what, was your, what was your favorite joke that you said to him during that roast? I mean, the one that gets the most airplay still is uh, Donald Trump. I don't even know if you're aware of this, but the only difference between you and Michael Douglas from the movie Wall Street is that no one's going to be sad when you get cancer. (laughs) That was like the big one. But my favorite was because he had said, don't say I have less money than I say I do. That was his big like, you can't say that. And I said, Donald, uh, you have such a great sense of humor. You've been so happy to embarrass yourself on Saturday Night Live and the casino business. And you could tell that hurt him. You could, you could hear like the men in the audience who were his friends going, oh, oh, because they knew he, that was a sore spot. Having his casino business fail was a sore spot. Oh, for so sure. That one was, that's my personal thing. Did, he, did you get to talk to him like after the roast or was he just completely secluded from everybody? Everyone, like he, I'm sure he talked to other people after the three roasts that I did, every single person stays the hell away from me. I was like the Darth Vader where they were like, yeah, yeah, you, got, you did well, but we don't want to talk to you. Like we don't want to be anywhere near you that I never talked to people before or after. When I remember going to Jeff Ross and saying, Jeff, I'm getting fame now. I'm meeting famous people and they're all afraid of me. Like I'm meeting, I'm like, oh, you're so cool. And they're like, yeah, 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 get away. You're going to make fun of me. And uh, what should I do? And Jeff goes, don't do anything. You've got mystique. And once I heard that, I was like, oh, fuck, I've got mystique. Yeah. And then I was just stuck. <laughs> well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast 
called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Um, I, I also have to say probably one of my favorite roasts was a Charlie Sheen roast. And, and a lot of it had to do not just with your performance, but with Patrice's, um, did you talk to Patrice after he called you a, uh, what do you say? You have the cadence of a, uh, a medieval times waiter. I think he said, you look like a medieval times waiter. Yeah. Go get me a Turkey leg. You fucking nothing. And at the, <laughs> like at the time, like I laugh. Because I'm like, because when someone makes a joke about you, no matter how bad it is, like you laugh, so it's good on TV. I truly did not get it. I've never been to med- medieval times. I assume you meant like I look like a dorky white guy. Fine, like I'm I'm cool with it. Uh, and I was like, I didn't know Patrice that well. And then uh, after the roast, he was mad, like he was still upset. And we ended up we we our cars get us back to the hotel. We're staying in the same hotel. And we get walk into the lobby and he's like, Anthony, he's like, you know, we don't know each other, man, but like, what is that? Like, what is that all about? And I'm like, Patrice, you know what roasts are like, you're older than me. You've been watching these. They've been, you agreed to do it. Like, what do you have a problem with? And he's like, why do they have to be so mean? And I'm like, did you hear what you said? Like, we're arguing kind of like friendly arguing in the elevator. And then it stops at his floor. I'm the next floor up and he gets out and he turns around. He's still talking to me. And I'm like, you know what? I can get out of this elevator right now, go hang out with Patrice and, t- and listen to him talk about the roast for an hour, or I can go upstairs and go to bed. And I went upstairs and went to bed and I never saw him again. Like he died shortly after that, that I wish I had gotten out, but I just, I couldn't believe that he was so in disbelief. I'm like, you've made people cry in meetings. Patrice. I know. <laughs> like, why are you upset that someone made fun of your diabetes on stage? Like it just, <laughs> it just, I didn't understand. And then I talked to Jeff Ross later on about it being confused. And he said, you don't understand. You don't know Patrice. He's like, that was Patrice getting himself psyched up Yeah. to go and do this. Like he, that was his process to go up and kill the room that, uh, that I, you know, I, I didn't know Patrice, but I, I didn't have any kind of problem with him. I can't say that I loved him because I truly didn't. I only met him for a couple of minutes, but I thought he was one of the greatest comedians of all time. Hundred percent, hundred percent, dude. I love. Thank you for telling that. That was fucking great. Um, all right, last song on the record, and quite possibly one of my favorite songs on the album. Well, it's true that we love one another. So this is just a humorous take on a classic country duet featuring British guitar. British garage rock vocalist Holly Golightly, which has occasionally become a trio when Meg gets dragged in to throw in a few disgusted lines. Uh, I love the hook of this so much. Uh, Peter, play it. Well, it's true that we love one another. I love Jack White like a little brother. Well, Holly, I love you too. But there's just so much that I don't know about you. I, I, I just, you know, when you were talking about your favorite songs on the record and 
I just can remember, like, out of everything I listened to, the first time I listened to this record all the way through, like, I, I, I was expecting every song that came on it, and nothing was like, I mean, stuff blew me away, but nothing just stopped me in my tracks. There was something about this song that it's still to this day, I, I just fucking love it. It's fun, it's cute, and it's such a great way to end the record after we've just been fucking throttled for 40 minutes and then you come out with this it's perfect way to end the record what are your thoughts i i agree because it's like it's light but it is not silly right it's not silly it's still a great song they play with a brother sister thing again i love jack white like little brother and i what i really love about it is coming from someone who doesn't know music at all is the way that holly go lightly sings out of like when they're like it's true that we love one another and she starts saying i love jack white like a little brother before they finish saying saying another you know like that just like that the rhythm of it and the momentum carries you through that you just i would keep listening to them have this conversation through song all day long and then at the end the uh cup of tea then bruce like i like that i like that like little like you gave us a peek because the rest of this album was recorded in two weeks and then this was recorded separately that it seems almost like a victory lap that I love that. That I just thought this was like, this is like the perfect. And I'm like, I'm sitting there like, who the fuck is Holly go lightly? Like, I got to find out who this is. How did she get in there? I was just obsessed with having a collaboration. They all seem to get along. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a perfect, maybe the perfect, uh, album closer. Yeah, for sure. All right. You want to do some facts and get out of here? Please. All right. The album is called Elephant because it represented Meg and Jack's personalities. Jack explained, we're powerful and majestic, but also subtle and innocent, clumsy yet brilliant, also silent. And the way elephants relate to death is interesting. They get real emotional about it. Elephants bury each other. Other animals would either eat another's remains or just not care, yet elephants care. I understand that. I wonder if he... I I, cause I assumed it was just like the like the the album is an elephant, you know. It's like what the, this thing's just re- this like stampeding through your mind. I wonder if he came up with that title after they recorded the album, or if he was like, "This is what we are. This is what we're going to do next. Here's what the album is," hmm. you know. Like, because I always come up with the title after I've like I come up with the title for my special after I'm done with it, not before, you know, because then things things will change. You don't want to get locked in. But I uh, I I I, it's, I love it. And apparently the, the album cover is supposed to look like an elephant where they're sitting on a trunk backwards where they're supposed to be the ears and the trunk is the head. And they're like, no one got it. No one got that the album cover is, is a head. So the album cover has Megan Jack sitting on an old amplifier under a single light bulb, her clutching a handkerchief against her tears dramatically and him holding a cricket bat. And just like you said, Jack claims that their placement in the shape of an elephant. But I, I personally, I didn't see it. Um, I want to know what's your spirit animal, uh, bro? A shark. Yeah, so I thought you were gonna say, yeah. There's no other option. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> you're like <laughs> a platypus. All right, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, I still don't see an elephant. I guess that. I guess you could be like, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't see it. I. I. I mean, kind of like the way her dress and the way their legs are. I mean, what's the trunk then? The trunk is like the head. I think they're supposed to be the ears. But it's, it, it makes no sense. Elephant was first released on vinyl before CD to help discourage early pirating and to weed out certain critics. 
According to Jack, because if a journalist or a critic doesn't own a record player, I don't really trust them. They're obviously not looking back. They don't know enough about music history. I, I mean, I, I can understand that. And I think it's like a very Jack White thing to do. I just I can't imagine he thought that he was going to get bad reviews for this album. Like, especially after White Blood Cells that he thought like, oh, they're, I'm going to take a beating on this one. Like this was universally beloved everybody this was on the this was like the number one record i mean rolling stone number one record of the year um i saw it on every like spin nme i mean because this is like the british people just they eat up jack white they fucking i remember i was in england when the raconteurs dropped their first record and it was like the way that you'd go to america and see like now like ariana ariana grande or like harry styles having like a whole wall dedicated to them it was all it was. And that was also what was so funny is like the difference between the way English people appreciate good music and Americans appreciate good music is that this is like worshipped in England. And here, you know, it got some it got a lot of airplay, but it's not like, do you know what I mean? Like the critics loved it, but not as much as like the general population. Yeah, But I know so many bands, bands that I'm friends with who were like, we make our money. We make so much more money touring overseas than we do in America. We sell the albums in America, but they love to come and see us there that I can see them. Like, do you ever see that live uh, like DVD they put out where they're in like Mexico city and she's just this like these like arenas full of people there to see the white stripes. This just unlike anything you would see in America as popular as they are here. No, I believe that. I believe, I mean, Spinal Tap was huge in Japan. They were nothing in America. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you, being we're talking about critics uh, and with social media the way that it is, what is your relationship with social media warriors? What do you mean by social media warrior? Critics, um, you know, fucking people that, you know, comment on your jokes or, or, or anything. Just because I see like, I see like you're so great at like somebody will say something to you and then you just come back with such a fucking great like you know, flip of the script. I mean, if, if people don't like me, I don't have to ask why. I'm like, yeah, I, 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 get, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but if they like keep, if they try to nitpick things, I get the same thing over and over again. So if someone tweets something at me, like a knock, and I have the perfect slam back, I'll do that. But I usually, I've stopped doing that because then people start to attack that person. And I feel like I'm like, I'm like put, putting millions of people, you know, going after one, one idiot who made some comment. When it comes to critics, my my response to anyone writing about me uh, or like a, an actual critic writing about my comedy, positive or negative, is always thank you. I don't have to take the criticism. I don't have to listen to it. But I always I just I don't think enough people write about comedy or talk about comedy that anytime someone does, even if they don't like me, I'm happy that they've talked about me at all. And I feel like I can't be dismissed across the board. Even if you hate what I do, you have to admit that guy can write a joke. You know, so I take the compliment and then I leave the rest of it behind. I never get bitter. I never get angry. And social media is you can you can put as much of it into your, you can put as much of it into you as you want, but it doesn't mean anything. You know, Twitter is truly nothing. If someone's like, oh, someone like my tweet only got this many likes or someone got mad about this tweet. Like, no, they didn't. A couple people. Just because you got four comments and they were all negative. That's only four people who wrote a comment. And I would never write a negative tweet to anyone or leave a comment for anything, whether I loved it or hated it, that I don't understand it. So it's like these, it's like this underclass that I'm not aware of, but it doesn't bother me. If I can make a joke out of it, great, but I'm not searching through like, I hope people liked it. What's the, what's the harshest thing a critic's ever said about you? The only thing I remember, and I remember cutting this guy off out of my life forever, was he goes, uh, Anthony Jeselnik had a great set, except for that one rape joke that was far too cheap and easy. 
And I was like, motherfucker, it took me eight years to write a rape joke that I could get away with on stage. There was nothing cheap or easy about that. And that just seemed like it seemed like a slam out of nowhere. Like you see uh, younger critics or like inexperienced critics who can't just say they really love something. They feel like they have to say one negative thing in there and they do it in like a snarky way that I'm like, well, fuck you. You know, I, and I just disagreed with what he had said. And there's some critics who say things that I'm like, yeah, you got me there. Like if I could go back, I probably would have changed that. But I'll never forget reading that and being like, oh, fuck you, the comics comic. You're dead. Yeah. To me. <laughs> That's I'm not going to. I fucking when you said the one person and somebody would critique, that's exactly who I thought it was, dude. Yeah, he shit all over my JFL New Faces set. He didn't shit all over it, but he was just like, oh, he's doing jokes about being a strip club DJ. All right. And I was like, this is all I've got. Is this this show? Like, please just say great job. And why are you even critiquing it? It's just, it just broke my heart. So yeah, you're saying something just to say something. So yeah, that annoys me for sure. And when they try to be too clever, it's like, if you were clever, you would be doing what I do. Yeah, dude. All right. Uh, the record is dedicated to the death of the sweetheart, which saw Jack lamenting the passing of some old fashioned ideals. He said the sweetheart, the gentleman, it's the same thing. These ideas seem to be in decline and I hate it. He further explained. It's funny to shock people with normality, I mean, it's becoming an age of punk for the sake of punk, angst for the sake of angst. What are we rebelling against? He kind of sounds like a rich asshole. You know, it sounds like he's already made it. And he's just like, he just kind of is looking back on this time of music and what kind of, uh, and like the character that musicians would play back in the day that he misses that. Like he wishes he was Johnny Cash, you know, with June Carter going around touring that I understand kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, wishing, some things were like that, but you look at how far things have come. I don't want to go back in time at all for any reason. Yeah, no, for sure. All right. Last fact. Uh, 2003 was a year of accidents as Meg broke her wrist right before the album came out and they had to postpone shows. And then in July, Jack got into a car accident and had his left index finger destroyed and they had to cancel their European festival headline spots and tour. Of course, Jack posted the video of the surgery on his finger. One happy accident that came out of it was that Jack had time to produce Loretta Lynn's 42nd and most successful album, Van Leer Rose, which we've already done uh, Loretta Lynn's greatest hits on this list, which I fell in love with her. But I listened to Van Leer Rose and it is fucking perfect, man. It's such a great record. So I wanted to ask you, what was your happiest accident? Uh, honestly, COVID. COVID is, a, it made me, this pandemic has made me take time off, whereas I, I was incapable. I would finish the special, I would tape the special, and I would immediately start writing the next one and, and take no break. It, it just felt like if I took a break, I would lose something. And this has made me take, this is the longest I've taken off stand up since I started 20 years ago. So I think this will end up being good for me. Like I'm jotting down notes for stand up when I can get back on stage. But if I can't get up at the comedy store every night and bomb with these jokes and write new ones, there's no reason. So I'm jotting down notes and waiting to be able to get back up again. But I think that this will have a great effect on my art because I refuse to do COVID jokes. I ref like I didn't do any Trump stuff. In those four years, I'm like, I'm not going to have four years of my career be the Trump years. I'm going to I'm going to stay out of that and I'm going to stay out of the covid stuff. So even when we come back and people are joking about masks and joking about being six feet of distance, I'm avoiding all of that. And I want my stuff to be evergreen. So if you listen to my next special, 
you know, 50 years from now, you'd have no idea it took place after the pandemic. But I really, I, I, I just made sure to make sure to take this break, get a dog, keep myself sane and happy, read a lot, don't drink too much. And, and when it's all, when it's all said and done, I can, I can step out of the sane and get back on stage and pick up where I left off. Oh, I fucking love that, dude. I can't wait for you to get back on stage, man. Cause I love watching you. I, I love being friends with you, man. You are, this was so much fun, dude. This was just so great. And uh, so anything you want to promote, please go ahead. Uh, the Jesselnick and Rosenthal Vanity Project, JRVP, is my uh, my podcast with my best friend. It's just bonkers. We don't even try to be serious. Uh, it's just it's just funny front to back. We're on all things comedy now. Uh, we just did episode 81 uh, this week. We do it every week, every Tuesday night. Uh, JRVP, uh, download it, subscribe. Uh, you'll love it. It's, it's uh, one of the goofiest, funniest podcasts out there. Dude, everybody subscribe to it. Anthony, uh, thank you, brother. I appreciate it, man. Thank you, Josh. Glad we could do this. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Anthony Jeselnik. Guys, listen to his podcast. Subscribe to Jeselnik and Rosenthal Vanity Project. You can find it anywhere you get your podcast. And follow Anthony on Twitter at Anthony Jeselnik. And for all things Anthony, go to his website, anthonyjeselnik.com. Also, before I go any further, guys, I want to give a shout out to the guy that does all of our art at Young and Sick. This week's art was incredible. He kills it every week. Follow at Young and Sick. He is an incredible dude. Now, we just listened to the White Stripes from 2003. This week for new music, we have a fan submission. You are listening to Dance in the Sand. Ballad of a Witness by Minneapolis-based rock band The Strange Heroes. The band originally formed as a three-piece in 2012, and founding members Brandon Lee and Taylor Ellis have been playing together ever since. This duo has taken a few different configurations under different projects, but their influence and output has remained constant. Rock and roll. The Strange Heroes cite recordings from Jack White as a root influence on the band's production style. And you can find this song and all of their music on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you are in a band and you want your music featured on The 500 because you were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists, just like The Strange Heroes that are playing right now, Send your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is Don Henley week as we go deep into his 1989 record of the year Grammy winning The End of Innocence. So y'all got some homework to do. Listen to the record. Stay fleecy. We will do it.
Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Next Chapter Podcasts.